Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we commemorate the 45th anniversary of the historic Apollo 11 mission. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We'll discuss documents and photographs from the Spanish War veterans. The Spanish-American War, at least in terms of... Uh, the history of, of American wars generally sort of gets skipped over as kind of a, a really a footnote. And we'll talk about an annual poetry publication and event called Revelry. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Man on the moon. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh... Oh, jeez. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Yeah. What? <laughs> okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. Armstrong is on the moon, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Forty-five years ago, CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite shared the amazement of his viewers as images of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon were broadcast on Earth. Historians, humanity scholars, and sociologists say the moment that the first human being set foot on the moon, the modern era ended and the postmodern age began. Florida history, then, encompasses the bookends of the modern era, with Spanish discovery and colonization of the New World on one end and the launch of humans to the moon on the other. On the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, a monument to the Apollo program was unveiled at Spaceview Park in Titusville. Well, if you don't remember and understand the mistakes of the past, you'll make them all again in the future. Charlie Mars is president of the U.S. Space Walk of Fame Foundation, the group that raised the money to design and build the monuments in Spaceview Park. Mars was involved with the Apollo program from the early design phase through the last mission as the Lunar Module Chief Project Engineer. The Apollo monument at Spaceview Park consists of a huge stainless steel A encircled by a bronze earth and moon, 12 bronze panels, and a life-size statue of John F. Kennedy at a podium. Lining the walkway around the monument are pylons engraved with the names of astronauts. Charlie Mars. We have always had the concept of the big stainless steel A with the Earth and the Moon and the panels around the base of the monument telling the Apollo story. And that's what all the big bronze panels do. The pylons, we really sort of came to grips with how we were going to mount the Apollo bronzed handprints and the names of the workers about five or six years ago. And that was what you see now, which is individual pylons. It takes 15 to accommodate all 42 of the astronauts that flew Apollo. And we define Apollo not only as all the lunar missions, but Skylab and ASTP. So you'll notice on pylon 15, we also have the astronaut or the cosmonaut handprints. Sculptor Sandra Storm created the Apollo monument in Spaceview Park. Her work includes the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Memorial in Vieira, 
a religious monument in Kansas, and a World War II memorial in Kissimmee. The uh, space workers formed a foundation, I think it was even 20 or 20 or more years ago, to do the monuments for the space program, Apollo, Gemini, Mercury. So they already have the Gemini and Mercury in place. And uh, then they were searching for sculptors to do the Apollo monument. And they did look at uh, quite a few sculptors, national, nationally known. And um, then I was, uh, someone suggested they interview me. I, I would think I was on an, uh, another memorial at the time. But um, uh, for any sculptor to be able to do a monument of this important, this such an important event in history is just incredible. Storm says she always tries to tell a story in her work and that the Apollo Monument provided her a unique opportunity to do that. Storm designed the Apollo Monument with its giant A, 12 bronze panels, and life-size President Kennedy 10 years before it was completed. In 98, I, I designed the whole monument and decided, well, they also wanted somewhere to have the, the A on it. So we thought it would be beautiful to have it on top and uh, make it taller and more, more beautiful and everything. And I knew we needed a lot of space to tell the story because I had everybody seen all the Apollo books. And, and uh, so I decided on the 12 panels. And each panel is four foot wide and they go up to seven foot tall. Kind of represents an orbit, the, the slanted panels do. And... Um, Got all the pictures together and uh, tried to include everything that these that the space workers and the astronauts know, and put them in order. And the importance of Kennedy, everybody knows that too. His speech about going to the moon before the decade was out. So uh, we wanted to include that. They 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 were the ones that actually insisted on that. I had thought of it, but they they really wanted to include that. What was once the furthest outpost on the old frontier of the West will be the furthest outpost on the new frontier of science and space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Most viewers are first struck by the Apollo Monument's huge A, are then drawn to the image of Kennedy at his podium, and then absorb the 12 bronze panels surrounding the A. It goes to the right, around the circle, and uh, it, it actually shows some of their first sketches. I sculpted those, drew those in, and then it's all relief, um, except Kennedy is three-dimensional. And then the podium, and on the front of the podium, is to me one of the most amazing photographs from that time. Uh, it's the actual, some photographer thought to turn the camera back towards the audience and take a couple of pictures. I think I, think I saw three of them maybe. Uh, and I combined a couple of them with the faces. And uh, they're looking up at the, this is actually the Apollo launch, this launch, you know, the, the most important launch. And uh, it's just a beautiful scene, and we, I printed some of his speech on the front of the podium. But then the rest of it tells the story, and I was hoping to get the actual panel with the launch opposite of Kennedy and bring it out a little bit, and it just it worked out anyway. It just is amazing how... And it ends up at the end, then, with the splashdown of the Apollo 11. After using photographs and space worker interviews to inspire her designs, Sandra Storm turned to the difficult work of actually creating the monument. I had started out with the space worker, uh, one of the space workers building the panels. 
uh, out of four foot wide plywood and then uh, a frame, very sturdy frame, because we needed to keep it very flat. It's a, it's a nightmare for a foundry to do flat panels. Nobody wanted to do it anyway. And a lot of most of the foundries, uh, as our my foundry, American Bronze in Sanford, they found out later nobody would do it. They say you guys are crazy. They said uh, it's very difficult because every time you weld on it anywhere on a flat panel, it warps. Then you have to straighten it, reweld, uh, grind it. And I I do most of that myself so that the uh, I keep the the artwork the way it was when I first did it. So I'm, I want to be able to grind on the face every, every piece of the artwork myself. So I spent years in the foundry. This was an eight-year project. Storm became so personally involved with her subject that she included the faces of her children on one of the bronze panels watching the Apollo 11 launch. Yeah, there was a couple of blurry faces. Uh, so, and they looked young, very young. So at that time, I, I, it was just perfect to use my son's face and my daughter's face. And, so I'm really excited about that. Hundreds of space workers and others came to the unveiling ceremony of the Apollo Monument in Spaceview Park. Titusville Mayor Jim Tolley offered an informal resolution. Whereas words are insufficient to describe the awesome achievement of Apollo, and where words are insufficient to describe the pride the awesome pride in every American heart as we watched our astronauts walk on the moon for the first time. And whereas words are insufficient to describe the incredible dedication of the Apollo team all over the country and, and here at the Kennedy Space Center. Therefore, be it resolved that this beautiful work of art, and beautiful it is, where do you see it? Be it resolved that this beautiful work of art is a fitting and lasting visual tribute to all three. All in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. I think the motion, the resolution passes unanimously. Lisa Malone is Director of External Relations for NASA. Like many NASA employees today, Malone is a descendant of an Apollo program worker. Lisa's father, Joe Malone, led a team of draftsmen. Lisa Malone represented NASA at the Apollo Monument unveiling. On July 16, 1969, with their usual painstaking attention to details and absolute focus, the Kennedy Space Center team launched the Saturn V on the legendary Apollo 11 mission. It is estimated that between 750,000 to 1 million people came to visit Brevard County to see this historic launch, to see what the Kennedy Space Center was up to. This whole street here, all along US-1 was filled with people. This Indian River was filled with boaters, and the people wanted to come and see what we were doing. Everyone all over the world stopped to see what was going on down here at Kennedy Space Center. We often speak of the astronauts during this anniversary, but the men who walked on the moon were figuratively standing on the shoulders of the thousands of Space Center workers who helped them put, who helped put them on the surface, surface of Earth's celestial neighbor. And the astronauts yesterday actually paid tribute to all of you in the ceremony that we had out at the Saturn V Center. The Apollo employees belong to a generation that will forever be remembered as the greatest space generation. The decade of the 1960s. 45 years ago, the flight of Apollo 11 changed the course of human history. 
As Charlie Mars explains, the economic impact on Brevard County and the small town of Titusville was significant. Oh, no telling how many millions of dollars were poured into the economy from workers and hotels and restaurants and gift shops and rental cars, airline tickets. So, you know, uh, a tourist attraction. That's what it was for every shot. In addition to overseeing Spaceview Park and the monuments there, Charlie Mars operates the Spacewalk of Fame Museum nearby. The museum is pretty much memorabilia that the workers had with them. They you know, carried them home uh, by mistake or on purpose, who knows, we don't ask. And those items that we have in the museum were mainly donated by both NASA and contractor workers retired as well as active. We have some planes from the astronauts. We have some planes from NASA Kennedy Space Center. Um, that's what we try and do is give people a feel for what it was like being a worker. While Charlie Mars is dedicating his life to preserving and celebrating NASA's past, he's not optimistic about the space agency's future. I think they will never reach the pinnacle that we reached on Apollo. Uh, it's gotten more political, it's gotten more involved as far as numbers of folks required to make decisions, uh, more procedures required, and what's caused that mainly has been the accidents that we've had. Starting with Apollo 1, obviously things got a little tighter, they got more people involved. Then we had Challenger in Columbia, which has really added to the numbers of people required on almost any decision-making process. The Apollo Monument is at Spaceview Park in Titusville. On July 16, 1969, astronauts Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin launched from Kennedy Space Center aboard a Saturn V rocket. Four days later, Armstrong, closely followed by Aldrin, left the lunar module Eagle and became the first people to walk on the moon. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Me. 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, Florida played a significant role in the Spanish-American War of 1898. That's right. And the Spanish-American War, at least in terms of uh, the history of, of American wars, generally sort of gets skipped over as kind of a uh, really a footnote in American military history. But um, it really was a, an enormous mobilization of troops, even though the war itself uh, really lasted only a few months. Um, it was sparked by the, the explosion of the USS Maine uh, down in Havana Harbor in Cuba in, in February of 1898. Uh, and a few months later, the U.S. declared war on Spain. And the actual uh, fighting itself only lasted a few months. It was over by the, by the end of the year. Um, but as I said, there was a massive mobilization of state militias from all over the country that descended on the southernmost state in the continental U.S., Florida, to train and also uh, to ship off uh, from, from the U.S. to, to Cuba um, to, to lend a hand in, in the battle. And there were a couple of large training stations. The, um, probably the most well-known was in Tampa. Um, the who later would become president, Teddy Roosevelt, and his famous Rough Riders uh, were, were headquartered out of Tampa, and they shipped off for Cuba. But there was also a large training base in Jacksonville and also in Key West. Uh, it, at that time, Key West was still a, a relatively large uh, city and, and a major trading point, and it was only 90 miles from Cuba, so it was the, the closest point. Um, so there were thou- tens of thousands of, of soldiers from state militias and also regular um, um, soldiers from the regular army and navy who descended on Florida uh, in 1898. The Library of Florida History has an extensive collection of Spanish War veteran uh, documents and photographs. Yeah, that's right. And uh, some of the more interesting documents in that collection are the photographs. We have a collection here from a a soldier who was actually part of a uh, volunteer state militia out of Ohio um, and traveled down to Florida and actually trained in a camp in Jacksonville. And many of the photos show the soldiers just horsing around in camp, playing cards, uh, catching rattlesnakes, and it uh, looks like they've, they've got a few stray dogs that they've... Um, turned into pets. There's, another, there's one great photo of what looks like the, uh, uh, the soldiers, uh, the, the mess hall, essentially. It's kind of a, a shack, uh, but they're up to their ankles in water. It looks like there must have been a, a famous Florida rainstorm that they were stuck in and, and um, learned very quickly about uh, subtropical climate. There's another great photo of the fort in St. Augustine, the Castillo de San Marcos, from a distance. And, and this uh, probably would have been quite a sight for someone, you know, traveling down to Florida from the heartland and, and learning about this this ancient city. Um, uh, like I said, many of the photos deal with uh, regular camp life. It looks like there are some uh, drills going on here in the background. Um, and again, just a lot of uh, playing cars and sort of milling about before the uh, the soldiers shipped off to uh, shipped off to Cuba. But the majority of the collection is actually uh, documents that were created long after the war. Um, the U.S. Uh, Spanish War Veterans Organization, which is one of the largest, became one of the largest veterans organizations in the country, was formed shortly after the the conflict and became a, a very powerful lobbying force. Um, and a number of those documents, the meeting proceedings uh, on into the 20th century, are housed at the Florida Historical Society Library. As uh, state chapters closed down, materials were sent to uh, states that had surviving members. And, and Florida, uh, being a large retiree state, a lot of survivors of this conflict uh, ended up in Florida. So many of those materials from different states ended up uh, in this one particular collection. Now, you also have photos here from the Philippine insurrection of the late 1800s and early 1900s. 
That's right. You know, as a result of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. acquired the Philippines in, in the South Pacific, um, and they also inherited uh, a war. The, there was an insurrection going on. The, uh, uh, the native people in the Philippines were rising up against the Spanish, uh, and, and the U.S. sort of walked into this conflict. So they sent thousands of, of uh, the state militia troops uh, who were on their way to Cuba ended up going to the Philippines. Now, the Philippines' insurrection lasted for a few more years, and there was a lot more uh, very intense fighting. Um, and as a result, uh, many more soldiers uh, traveled to the Philippines, and many more actually died during that period. Um, but they were sort of rolled into that same veterans group, and they, we kind of grouped them all together as, as U.S. War, Spanish War veterans. Uh, so they became part of this um, this this large lobbying group, um, and also their documents, their scrapbooks became part of this collection. So uh, another of the uh, photo collections we have deal specifically with the Philippines. So there's not much of a Florida connection, but like I said, they were all sort of grouped together in this veterans group. And unlike the training photos that you see from Jacksonville, the images from the Philippines are much more grisly. You have actual war scenes, the, the aftermath of battles, uh, burned out villages, and it's uh, really powerful, powerful images to look at. And again, it gives us a sort of a different insight on uh, this very uh, short conflict but had long-term impacts on, on American history. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. They say we must fight to keep our freedom. The Lord knows there's got to be a better way. Oh, John, what is it good for? You tell them. Yes, 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 yes. Good God, now. What is it good for? Stand up and shout it. Nothing. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com takes us to an annual poetry event in Sanford, Florida, called Revelry. Revelry is the literary voice of the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Association of Florida, and it's published annually. We solicit poems and then invite those poets who have poems accepted, read their poems, on the first Saturday, usually, in June, which is closest to the birthday of Gwendolyn Brooks. That was Dr. Stephen Caldwell-Wright, a retired English professor from Seminole State College and president and founder of the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Association of Florida. Gwendolyn Brooks was an accomplished African-American poet who passed away in 2000. She was the Poet Laureate of Illinois and won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1950. He spoke to me about Revelry, which is a yearly event and publication that features poets who travel to Sanford, Florida every summer to read their poems. In 2014, Dr. Wright and the supporters were celebrating the 27th year of this gathering. Dr. Wright has published several books and journal articles on Brooks's prose and was a friend and confidant of the noted poet. Here, he tells me the original inspiration for the organization and yearly event. Revelry uh, 
was inspired uh, based on an award which Gwendolyn Brooks presented to me. That award was presented at Howard University. I wanted to do something that would uh, commemorate her generous spirit in a lasting fashion. And so I founded Revelry, and with her permission, uh, started the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Association of Florida. Each year the location of Revelry changes. In 2014, when I attended it, it was held at the banquet room of the Patio Grill in Sanford, Florida. And it was on the patio there where he spoke to me about these types of events. For Dr. Wright and many of the poets and patrons of the event, reading these poems aloud holds a special meaning each year. Dr. Wright shares his thoughts concerning poetry readings with me. As I was saying to someone earlier just today, um, the person was commenting on the, how powerful the poems are, and I added that hearing the poems provides that power, hence the terminology voice, the literary voice of the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Association. My feeling has always been that a poem isn't really alive, as Emily Dickinson uh, alluded, you know, a word is dead when it is said, some people say, I say it just begins to live that day. And that's the way poems are. They, they come alive. On the page, there may be one thing, but when they get in the book and then they're read, we often see another dimension that we sensed might have been there. Dr. Wright contemplates how events like revelry reflect new directions and trends in poetry. Here he tells me how the issue of spoken word poetry bled into the revelry event in 2014. That's what I alluded to in, in today's foreword. I don't know what to expect, but I know it's going to be something good. <laughs> you know, you know what, what is poetry becoming and, and that kind of thing. One indication might be one poem that is in this year's uh, volume that was not read. The reader was not here. She lives a distance away. But it's close to spoken word, and, and poetry is moving in that, in that direction. Well, what she actually talked about in the poem, uh, and actually she talked about it in the poem, the idea of having uh, been informed that uh, spoken word is not poetry. And then she went on to write about it. Each year, the organizers of Revelry award one poet the Thomas Burnett Swan Award. Swan was a literature professor at Florida Atlantic University who Dr. Wright himself studied under. Revelry is an opportunity for Dr. Wright to give back and commemorate the impact of two of his mentors, Gwendolyn Brooks and Thomas Burnett Swan. The words, performances, and publications that follow each year are a touching tribute to these two writers. In 2017, Reverie will be celebrating its 30th anniversary. To correspond, write to the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Association of Florida at P.O. Box 724, Sanford, Florida, 32772. That was Dr. Stephen Caldwell Wright, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org 
and like us on Facebook to get our daily post today in Florida history. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.